the Gideon cycle is not over with yet. Because now we're going to look at the fruit of Gideon, his son Abimelech. Now Abimelech is definitely not a judge. He doesn't function as a judge. He's not called as a judge. He's not called up by God in any kind of way. So you need to understand that nowhere is God having you think that this guy is a judge. In fact, in a historical, political, militarily, political kind of way, he's not functioning as a judge. The only reason he's in here is to show you what Gideon was like because he produced this kind of a son. This is the aftermath of the character of Gideon. So chapter 9, verse 1. Now Bimelech, son of Jerubbaal, went to Shechem to see his mother's relatives. He said to them and to his mother's entire extended family, Tell all the leaders of Shechem this. Why would you want to have 70 men, all Jerubbaal's sons, ruling over you when you can have just one ruler? Recall that I am your own flesh and blood. Now what's interesting is that Abimelech is seeing himself as a dynasty. The next in line is king. Yet the Bible has made it very clear throughout the book of Judges that the next leader is not chosen by biological descendancy, but by God's calling. So he's completely eliminated God's calling to lift up the next leader. He's automatically putting himself forward as a leader because I'm the son of Gideon. That's tradition. Now Gideon has all these other sons, so he says, goes to Shechem, who happens to be where his mother is. And Shechem is also the heart of the political things. Because Shechem was a, it was a very powerful city in influence. So like a, a, a Los Angeles or San Francisco, Washington, D.C. And he goes to him and says, hey, it's obvious that the sons of Gideon are becoming leaders and rulers. Would you rather have them ruling over you? who are from other cities and different political power bases and loyalties? Or would you rather have me ruling, who were brothers and sisters biologically, literally, and I will support your interests and you support mine? So this is the beginning of lobbying and campaigning. <laughs> and they say, of course you. But it just happens to be that Shechem also has a Baal temple there. Now notice something here. They agreed to do this. So he says, his mother's relatives spoke on his behalf to all the leaders of Shechem and reported the proposal. The leaders were drawn to Abimelech and they said, he is our close relative. They paid him 70 silver shekels out of the temple of Baal Barat. So what's funding his political campaign for kingship? Baal. How did God start the Gideon story? Tear down the power of Baal. Now, Baal is funding the campaign of his son. Everything is just coming back around again. Gideon hasn't successfully really accomplished anything. And not just that, what's interesting is that he's called Jeru Baal. Meaning, did Baal fight back by killing Gideon instantly on the spot? No, because most of the time the demonic false gods don't usually fight back by killing you in a powerful way. They fight back by corrupting your family. And this is what Balaam said in the book of Numbers. You can't stop Israel politically and militarily because God is with them defeating all their enemies. You can't defeat them through spiritual warfare cursing because God is far greater than all of them. So what you should do is sexually 
corrupt them, and tempt them into sin. Because that's the one thing that God will not protect you from. Your own choice. And that's what happens. But all does not fight back with power or magic. He fights back by tempting your family members into sin and moral decay. And that's how Baal fought back. And that's how Gideon lost his son. Also because he didn't really teach his son right. So they fund him from this temple. Abimelech then uses silver to hire some lawless, dangerous men as his followers. Now some translations have like adventurers, which is like, sounds like a movie. Abimelech and the adventurers. But the word is mostly like lawless. And then in, in the Hebrews, actually worthless scoundrels. Morally bankrupt people, basically, who will do anything for money. That's the idea that is here. He went to his father's home in Ophrah, and he murdered his half-brothers, the 70 legitimate sons of Jerubbaal, on one stone. So he murders 70, all of his brothers. And not just on, just murders them, but on one stone. Now, in order for that to happen, means that he grabs them and brings them to the stone. And he kills them. And one can't help but wonder, is this a sacrifice to the gods? We know that human sacrifice is a part of the Canaanites. And so it's, I don't want to make the assumption that this is a human sacrifice, because it doesn't specifically say that, but it could be that the narrator doesn't have to say it because the people he's originally writing to would fully understood what that mean. And we don't quite fully understand it because we're divorced from that culture. And that's why we can't be as confident. But either way, even if there's not human sacrifice going on here, how sick and twisted do you have to be to kill that many people, let alone your own brothers, let alone to drag them back to the same murder spot? This is what makes it sound like it's a sacrifice, especially when the Baal Temple is funding him. And Baal did require human sacrifices. But Jerubbaal's youngest son escaped and hid. And all the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo assembled and then went and made Abimelech king by the oak near the pillar of Shechem. So he's king now. But one of the sons got away. Verse 7. When Jotham heard the news, he went and stood on the top of Mount Gerizim. And he spoke loudly to all the people below. Listen to me, leaders of Shechem, so that God may listen to you. So goes the Gerizim, which is the hill of blessing and cursing from the book of Deuteronomy. And he says, The trees determined to go out and choose a king for themselves. They said to the olive tree, Be our king. But the olive tree said to them, I am not going to stop producing my oil, which is used to honor the gods, men and just to sway above the other trees. So the trees said to the fig tree, You come and be our king. But the fig tree said to them, I am not going to stop producing my sweet figs, my excellent fruit, just to sway above the other trees. So the trees said to the grapevine, You come and be our king. But the grapevine said to them, I am not going to stop producing my wine, which becomes the gods, and men, which makes gods and men so happy, just to sway above the other trees. So all the trees said to the thorn bush, You come and be our king. And the thorn bush said to the trees, If you really want to choose me as your king, then come along and find safety under my branches. Otherwise, may fire blaze from the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. What does this parable mean? Jotham stands up before all the people in Shechem and he says, The trees wanted the king. 
So they went to the logical conclusion, the olive tree, the fig tree, and the grapevine tree. All three of these trees are symbolic symbols of Israel chosen by God to represent him to the world. The olive tree is the tree that's connected to anointing and being led by God's spirit to become something great. And it also becomes a symbol of Israel's witness to the world used by the prophets and even the book of Revelation. The fig tree is this national, like, let's pick our logo, like the bald eagle for Israel. And this is why Jesus cursed the fig tree, because it was a national symbol of Israel. And the grapevine is associated with the symbol of the Messiah. So all three of these represent God's special relationship with Israel to represent him before the world. And they all produce fruit. So they go to these people and their logical conclusions. But basically what's happening is that these trees are refusing, which means that these trees are refusing the function in the way that they're supposed to. They're supposed to be guiding, providing for the people, that kind of stuff. So the, 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 the people who are the most godly, the most likely, the most equipped to be the leaders are not there. So in desperation, they want a leader and they go to the thorn bush. The thorn bush doesn't produce any kind of fruit. It's the last place you want to go and sit for shade that doesn't provide any shade. In order to crawl into it to provide shade, you're going to be stuck by thorns, which is an interesting connection back to Gideon and what he had done, and that's intentional by the narrator. And not only that, thorn bushes are so dried out in a desert culture, they were known to spontaneously just burst into flames. You don't want to be there sleeping when that happens. There's no benefit whatsoever, but the thorn bush says, hey, I'll do it. And of course, the thorn bush is Abimelech. And basically what happens is Jotham is going to curse them and say this. Now, if you've shown loyalty, integrity, when you made Abimelech king, if you have done right in Jerubbaal's family, if you have pro- properly reminded him, repaid him, my father fought for you and he risked his life and delivered you from the Midian's power. But if you have attacked my father's family today, you murdered his 70 legitimate sons on one stone and made Abimelech the son of his female slave, king of the leaders of Shechem, just because he is your close relative. So if you have shown loyalty and integrity to Jerubbaal and his family today, then may Abimelech bring you happiness and may you bring him happiness. But if not, may fire blaze down from Abimelech and consume you and the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. May fire also blaze from the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo and consume Abimelech. Then Jotham ran away to bear and he lived there to escape from Abimelech, his half-brother. So he basically says, look, if this is all great and hunky-dory and you're all serving God and benefiting each other, then may you be happy. But if this is all about self-interest and hurting people and gaining power and money for your own purposes, then may you consume each other in your own fire of chaos and destruction. And then he runs away. And he goes into hiding. So the question is, what's going to happen? Verse 22, Abimelech commanded Israel for three years. Three years he acted as king. Now, he's not king over all of Israel. Probably just more in this look. Even though it says commanded Israel, he's probably really only functioning truly as a king in a central location of Shechem. He made the leaders of Shechem disloyal to Abimelech. So God made the leaders of Shechem disloyal to Abimelech. So God basically turns them against each other. Now, notice that's how he defeated the Midianites, is by turning them against each other. So a lot of times God doesn't actually have to go in and have people get assassinated. 
a lot of times he just allows politics to become politics. And they destroy each other. He did this so that the violent deaths of Jerubbaal's 70 sons might be avenged, and Abimelech and their half-brother who murdered them might have to pay for their spilled blood, along with the leaders of Shechem who helped him murder them. The leaders of Shechem rebelled against Abimelech by putting bandits in the hills who robbed everyone who traveled by the road, but Abimelech found out about it. So now there's a civil war between Abimelech and his supporters. Gaal, son of Ebed, came through Shechem with his brothers. The leaders of Shechem transferred their loyalty to him. So now we have rival, rival leaders, Abimelech and Gaal. They went out into the field and harvested their grapes and squeezed out the juice and celebrated. They came to the temple of their god and ate, drank, and cursed Abimelech. So basically, you're like, okay, good. They're not supporting Abimelech anymore, but instead they've turned to an alcoholic who is just partying and drinking all the time in the temple of the gods. So they just replaced one leader with another bad leader. Gaal, son of Ebed, said, Who is this Abimelech and who is Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbaal and is not Zebul, the deputy he appointed? Serve the sons of Amor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve Abimelech? So he's like, okay, I'll be loyal to Shechem, but why should I be loyal to Abimelech? Where did he come from? If only these men were under my command, I would get rid of Abimelech. And he challenged Abimelech, muster your army and come out for battle. When Zebul, the city of commissioner, heard the words of Gaal, son of Abed, he was furious. He went and sent messengers to Abimelech, who was in Arun Arumah, reporting, Beware, Gaal, son of Ebed, and his brothers are coming. So Shechem and the inciting, to Shechem and inciting the city to rebel against you. Now come up in the night with your men and set an ambush in the field outside the city. In the morning at sunrise, quickly attack the city. And when he and his men come out to fight you, do what you came to do. So go in the city and amb- ambush Gaal. Basically, what is God trying to show you here? Everybody's just looking out for themselves, and everybody's just attacking everybody else for the sake of power. This has nothing to do with deliverance. It has nothing to do with obedience to God. Israel is in the midst of a civil war. The people of God who are supposed to be united, reflecting the image of God to be a blessing to the world, are now in a civil war serving their own interests and destroying each other. This is the aftermath of a leadership like Gideon. This is the standard that Gideon set. So Abimelech and all of his men came up at night and set an ambush outside Shechem. And they divided into four units. And when Gaal, son of Abed, came out and stood at the entrance of the city's gate, Abimelech and his men got up from their hiding places. Gaal saw the men and said to Zebul, Look, men are coming down from the tops of the hills. But Zebul said to him, You are seeing the shadows of the hills. It just looks like men. So the bull's kind of playing a double part. Gaal again said, Look at the men coming down from the very center of the land. A unit is coming by way of oak tree of the diviners. Zebul said to him, Where now are you bragging were your bragging words? Who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Are these not the men that you insulted? Go out now and fight them. So Gaal led the leaders of Shechem out and fought Abimelech. And Abimelech chased them, and Gaal ran away from him. And many Shechemites fell, wounded, at the entrance of the gate. Abimelech went back to Arumah, and Zebul drove Gaal and his brothers out of Shechem. So what's the point of this? Jotham prophesied, May Shechem's fires go out and consume Abimelech, and may Abimelech's fires go out and consume Shechem. 
That's what's happening. Shechem and Abimelech have turned against each other because God has made it happen. Now, politically, this is how the fire is working. Shechem has turned against Abimelech, and Abimelech's fires are destroying Shechem for the fact that they paid him to become a king who is ungodly without seeking the approval of Yahweh. The next day the Shechemites came out of the field, and when Abimelech heard about it, he took his men and divided them into three units and set an ambush in the field. And we saw the people coming out of the city. He attacked and struck them down. And Abimelech and his units attacked and blocked the entrance to the city gates. And two units then attacked all the people in the field and struck them down. Abimelech fought against the city all that day, and he captured the city and killed all the people in it, and he leveled the city and spread salt over it. This is a city that God gave to Israel, the city that Abraham first went to when he entered the land and built an altar, the city where the temple, the tabernacle is bent, and now he's salting it, meaning that nothing can grow again. Who in the world does he think? Now, here's what's really important. Who created the land? Who makes the land grow and produce blessings? Who put Israel in the land? And he put them in the land so the land would be a blessing to Israel. So who's the only one who has the right to do anything with the land? And yet Abimelech has put himself in the place of God, and he is making the land of God and the blessings of God infertile. Now, this doesn't seem that big of a deal to us because so what if he kind of just salts the fields? But remember, way back in the creation account, the three most important things is Yahweh, humanity, and the land. And they're all linked together in a way that nothing else is linked. And the whole point is that God is going to put man not in the chaotic waters, but in the land that produces blessings and fruit and life. And God is going to dwell in the land with them. Now they have prostituted themselves to other gods and they've driven God out, so to speak, of their relationship with them. They're not reflecting him and now they're destroying the land of God's blessings. They're destroying the people. They're destroying the image of God. They're destroying the land. This is the fruit of Gideon as a father not so king, supposedly. And that's the point that God is trying to make here. Verse 46. And notice that they were supposed to do this to who? The Canaanites. Gideon is treating his people in the way that they're supposed to do the Canaanites, but they couldn't do it because the Canaanites had iron chariots. And now they're supposed to be doing this to Canaanites, but they can't do it because they live in the coastal plains and they have superior generals. And he's doing it to his own people. They have taken the war of God and applied it to their own people. That's messed up. This is what we do. We attack other denominations. I mean, my goodness, I cannot turn the internet on and look at any like Facebook or website without like some YouTube video bashing other leaders in the church and tearing them down or another denomination. And if you look at world history, the church is notorious for killing each other over theology and stuff or their own agendas, their own politics. And we do the same thing. We backlash people. We, we tongue-lash them. And, and we're all supposed to be unified. And God says they will know you by the way that you treat each other, love each other. The only way, the only testimony we truly have of who God is is the way we treat each other. When the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard the news, they went to the stronghold of the temple of el And Abimelech heard that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were in one place. And his men went up to the mount 
Zalmon, and he took an axe in his hand and cut off a tree branch, and he put it on his shoulder and said to his men, Quickly do what you have just seen me do. So each of his men also cut off the branch and followed Abimelech. And they put the branches against the stronghold and set fire to all of it, and the people in the tower of Shechem died, about a thousand men and women. Are they all guilty of what Shechem did to him? No. So he is now massacring innocent people for what the leaders did. Knows that there's no, the tally on loss, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And then God didn't mean that literally. He meant that in a symbolic kind of a way, meaning let the punishment meet the crime. Don't get carried away. Abimelech's getting carried away. He's just massacring people. Where did he learn to act like this? His father, tearing down towers, killing innocent people for unnecessary things, exaggerating it. It's like father, like son. Now we're going to see the fires consume Abimelech. Abimelech moved on to Thebes. Now he's got a taste for it, just like his father. And now it's not just about hurting the people that hurt him. Now he's just going to do it to everybody. He's a dictator. He besieged and captured it, and there was a fortified tower in the center of the city. So all the men and women, as well as the city's leaders, ran up to it and locked the entrance. And they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came and attacked the tower. And when he approached the entrance of the tower to set it on fire, a woman threw an upper millstone. Now millstones. You've got a lower millstone, which is a circular stone, and it usually has a groove in it. And then a post coming up and then a post coming out and a per- perpendicular to it. And then you have another millstone that's circular and that's standing up like a wheel on a tire or tire wheel on a car. And that goes in the perpendicular stone and you push it around and it rolls around in the bottom stone to grind the grain or grapes or whatever. So she took the upper one, the stone that's like a wheel, and they're usually about this big. And she picked it up and it said that she threw it down and it shattered his skull. And he quickly called the young man who carried his weapons, draw your sword, kill me, so that you, they will not say a woman killed him. So the young man stabbed him and he died. And when the Israelites saw Abimelech was dead, they went home. That's anticlimactic. <laughs> oh, guess we'll just go home. <laughs> so a woman drops a millstone from the tower and drops his head. And it just crushes his skull. Now, some people said, oh, these things are too heavy for women to pick up. First, there are millstones that are huge that are way too heavy for anybody to pick up. Second, this is the job of the women to carry these millstones around a lot and grind the grain. And and so she has a strength. But once again, what do we see? A man who's not acting in the way that they're supposed to and the glory is going to a woman and God is using an unconventional person with an unconventional weapon to do his wedding. Here is Abimelech, all prideful and cocky. I'm the son of the great Gideon. I've slaughtered these cities and I think I can just do whatever I want. And it's an everyday normal woman who brings him to his end. This is the irony of God. And once again, God is showing that he's using women in ordinary ways or in unconventional ways. But at the same time, Israel's so messed up that a woman should never have to do this. And I don't mean just a woman either, a man. Nobody should ever have to come to a point where they have to throw a millstone on somebody's head and watch it explode and live with that for the rest of their life because they were so desperate to stay alive. And this is what God is showing us what's happening to Israel. These are the chosen 
people of God. Look, these are the people who God appeared to them in the fire. God parted the Red Sea. God miraculously provided for them. God verbally spoke to them. And if they're capable of ending up like this, then we are capable of ending up like that. And this is the warning. And don't think that God is not afraid of judging us and punishing us when we end up like this. Because God's got plenty of other millstones for everybody else who wants to go down this route. God repaid Abimelech for the evil that he did to his father by murdering his 70 half-brothers. God also repaid the men of Shechem for their evil deeds. And the curse spoke by Jotham, son of Jerubbaal, fell on them. This is the end of the Gideon cycle. And yes, you cannot say that if your son or daughter turns out to be a bad person, that that automatically means that you're a bad parent. But in this particular case, when God is writing the book and God is telling a very specific story, this is the case. You cannot transfer this and say, well, bad kids is always a result of bad parenting. That's not the theological lesson here. The theological lesson is in this particular case, now that you know so much about Gideon, it makes sense that his son like this, and therefore this is how his son ends up, and he continues what Gideon did to his own people, and God allows the end of Gideon's line as judgment. Now here's the really amazing part. God still used Gideon, and God still said in the book of Hebrews, by faith, Gideon. Think about that. If God can look at this, which none of us have come anywhere close to, maybe in your hearts at different times, but not in a physical action execution kind of way. If he can look at that and say, I will use Gideon, and I'm going to include him later in a book and say, look at the amazing thing that Gideon, I was able to do with Gideon when he showed faith. Imagine what he can do and say about you with the Holy Spirit and Christ actually in you after you've been redeemed through the cross. The lesson in this story is not just to be warned of where you can end up one day if you keep going down your selfish route. The lesson in this story is not just how God can still redeem you and how much he still loves you. The lesson is, my goodness, if God can actually use these people to accomplish his will, how much more can he do that with you? And this is where it becomes humbling. This is also a way to stop the pride in your life. It's also a way to defeat the low self-esteem. How do you battle the low self-esteem? You read stories like this and think, my goodness, if God favored him and blessed him and used him and still called him faith, then imagine what he can do with me. That battles your low self-esteem. And then battle your pride is like, my goodness, how am I even worthy for God to say this of me and use me in this kind of a way. When I see myself so much in this. And maybe not in action physically doing this kind of stuff, but in my heart of things that I've thought and felt about people at different times. And this is the lesson. This is why the real hero of the story is Yahweh. And what he does and how he uses them despite who they are. That's the real message of the Bible. That despite you, he's sanctifying, redeeming, and transforming you, and loving you, and pursuing you to the ends of the earth in a chesed kind of a way that no other God does. 
That's the real message of the Bible. So that you need to pick this up, that when we get to the very end of the Judges, and it says, in those days Israel had no king, and everyone didn't write in their own eyes, you're not going to make the mistake of thinking that the answer to that question is David. That you realize by now, it's really God. It's really God. And when you make God your king, you do not follow your own heart. You follow God's will. Because you will become the thing that you worship. And that's important. Gideon built an idol, they processed himself to it, and he and his sons became the thing that they worshipped. Seriously, look at what you're worshipping in your life. Now chapter 10, verse 1. After Abimelech's death, Tola, son of Pua, grandson of Dodo, there's another good name for you, <laughs> from the tribe of Issachar, rose up to deliver Israel. He lived in Shemar, the Ephraimite hill country, and he led Israel for 23 years. Then he, did, he died and was buried in Shemar. Jair, the Gileite, rose up after him, and he led Israel for 22 years, and he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys and possessed 30 cities. To this day, these towns are called Havath, Jair. They are in the land of the Gilead, and Jair died as he was buried in Kamon. Brief, brief, brief judge, but this is what you need to get from it. Donkeys are a symbol of kingship in the ancient world. They always have been. Now you have to understand, donkeys are not donkeys in the way that we think of donkeys. They're not the European donkeys of like stunted and stubborn and like Shrek. They, <laughs> they're more like a donkey that's a cross between a stallion and a donkey. They have the, 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 the stockiness and the sure-footedness and the ability to create, um, carry packs like a donkey, but they have the, the swiftness of a horse. And they're crossed between this. We, whenever you see, think of donkey in the Bible, you cannot picture our donkeys because they're kingship. Now, the reason they don't want horses in Israel is because his, Israel is hilly, and horses don't fare well in a sure-footedness, and they can't really quite carry the same load that a donkey can. And then we've read enough stories in the Bible knowing that carrying lots of things was really important to people in the ancient world. But at the same time, you don't want a donkey that is like stubborn like that all the time. You need something that's swift. And so it's there, but they're also, they're expensive. So they became associated with kings. This is why when God said to Hagar, your son will be a wild donkey of a man, a lot of people interpret that as an insult from God, but that's not. He's actually saying your son is going to become a king and he's going to produce kings. And then when it says that in Genesis 49 that the descendant of Judah is going to tie his donkey to the vine, what he's saying is that the vine is also the grapevine is symbolic of abundance of life and joy. And what he's saying is that future ruler, who is Jesus, is going to tie his kingship to abundance of life and joy, unlike any other king that has really ever existed. And then when Solomon became... So Adonijah is rebelling against his dad and trying to take the throne by force, and they enthrone Solomon behind his back. And what do they do? They put Solomon on a donkey, and they ride him through the streets, and they all declare him king. That's why Jesus was on a donkey. It was not humility. A lot of people say, oh, because donkeys are hum humble to us. We're like, who would ride a donkey to flaunt their power? But that's our interpretation. Don't read the Bible like an American. He was put on a donkey. He was not humbling himself. 
He was fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. And you shouldn't figure that out because the, the, the author says this is a fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. You go back and it's about a king writing in and taking over Israel and bringing it into its glory days. And not only that, they're all bowing down to him and declaring him king and nowhere does he say, oh, no, 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 don't do that. This is all about the king has arrived because the gospel begins with the angels saying to the shepherds, today your king has arrived. And it ends with Jesus proclaiming himself king and writing in. Donkeys are kingships. So when you're reading this, if you're an Israelite, you automatically know these guys are functioning as kings. And they have lots of sons. And they own their own cities. They're acting as kings in a way that they're not supposed to. And what you have is a dynasty. Because you're not allowed to make yourself king, only God can. God is the only kingmaker. And that is the big point that the book of Solomon's, or Samuel is making. God is the only kingmaker that there is. And they're making themselves kings by genealogy and not by God appointing them. This is the problem that Samuel makes when he appoints his sons as judges. He should have never done that. And this is a problem that Saul has when he tries to keep the kingship going so he can give it to Jonathan, even though God has appointed David. And even Jonathan gets that only God can be the kingmaker. And you're like, oh yeah, but David had a bunch of descendants who ended up being king, right? And they weren't punished. Yes, because God made his line kings. He anointed his entire line. And that's why it was okay. But it wasn't okay for everybody else. And so this is them becoming corrupted. They're acting like kings without permission from God. Israel has fallen so far. And Gideon is that final transition from semi-okay judges to now totally corrupt, ungodly judges. 